probably heard of the popular anime television series Dragon Ball Z. I was a teenager when it made its debut in the United States. Did you know that it's based off a manga series? Manga are comics or graphic novels originating from Japan. So many teenagers I meet with in therapy and young people I know personally outside of therapy are huge fans of anime and manga. Not only do manga reveal and reinforce cultural values, beliefs, and norms, particularly in Japan, but they can also be used as a teaching tool and source of information. In fact, manga and other comics can be used in medicine to learn and teach about illness and to build empathy. They also have the power to shape public understanding of mental health issues, even non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short. There are many genres of manga with different target audiences based on gender and age. I include a reference to many of these genres in today's episode notes, like shoujo manga, seinen manga, and josi manga. But just how many manga depict NSSI, and how are self-injury and the characters who engage in the behavior portrayed in manga? Do characters seek help, and if they do, from whom? To answer these questions and to provide insights into how cultural beliefs about NSSI can shape and be shaped by how self-injury is depicted in Japanese manga and other comics, I am joined today from Ryerson University in Canada by Dr. Yukari Seko. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Dr. Yukari Seko is an assistant professor at Ryerson University School of Professional Communication in Toronto, Canada. As a critical communication scholar by training, she uses a multimodal storytelling approach to disrupt normative discourses of health, illness, and disability. Her research interests include narratives of mental illness and disabilities, solution-focused communication, and arts-based research. Welcome, Dr. Seko. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Westers, for having me. How did you become interested in researching self-injury to begin with? I grew up in Tokyo, Japan, and moved to Canada to do graduate study. When I was in Japan, suicide was a major social issue, with more than 30,000 people took their life annually between 1998 to 2012. And around 2005, there were a series of suicide pacts arranged online, where people met at anonymous discussion board and took their lives together. I started searching the internet to know more about this phenomenon, and actually my first peer-reviewed publication was about this discussion board. In this process, I stumbled upon discussion boards and personal blogs in which people shared their engagement with non-suicidal self-injury. I was actually pretty fascinated by the potential of online communication to facilitate this deep, anonymous, emotional disclosure and their unique reading of self-injury as a way of coping. So I, as a communication scholar, I spent my graduate school time on researching about self-injury on the internet. First, self-injury blogs on LiveJournal for master's thesis, then self-injury photographs on Flickr for PhD dissertation, then interviewed people who post self-injury content online as a postdoctoral researcher. And I should mention that I had a pleasure of working with Dr. Stephen Lewis at the University of Guelph as a postdoctoral fellow. We interviewed him in an earlier episode, and I think we referenced some of that research that you just mentioned. 
When we think of self-injury in the media, we most often think of, or at least I most often think of movies, television, the news, and social media. But you and Dr. Minako Kikuchi recently dove into representations of self-injury in graphic novels, specifically Japanese manga. Interestingly, some manga depict characters engaging in self-injury, and you found some emerging trends. But before we talk about that, there are some cultural considerations we need to take into account when we talk about manga. First, what role does manga play in Japanese society, and does its role expand beyond Japanese culture to other cultures like Eastern cultures or Eastern even those here in the West. Manga has been instrumental in building a shared cultural space among Japanese readers, covering virtually all topics imaginable, including like sports, war, corporate life, gambling, sex, cooking, and medicine, among others. Manga is used for teaching, health promotion, public relations, or as a vehicle for government policy. So put it simply, manga is a form of mass media like, for example, this year's report by All Japan Magazine and Book Publishers and Editors Association indicated that the total sales of manga industry in 2020 was 612 billion yen, which is equivalent to 5.5 billion US dollar. This was a record high since 1978 because of the pandemic. People stayed at home and consumed more manga than previous years. Also, manga often provides content to anime, gaming, and other popular media platforms. Transmedia franchise, or so-called media mix, is a popular strategy among media marketers in Japan to disperse content across multiple platforms. You commonly see a popular manga transformed into anime, game, or character merchandise. Comicalization of novels, games, and films are also quite popular. So in other words, manga creates a complex web of cultural imagination for Japanese audience. And in terms of overseas sales, right, Japanese manga, anime, and other popular culture products have gained popularity overseas. The global anime market is actually bigger than manga market and was valued 20.5 billion US dollar in 2018. North American market is so far the largest outside Japan, partly due to the rapid growth of the distribution platforms like Netflix or Amazon. But manga and anime also attract European, East Asian, and South American audience. So I'm in Toronto, Canada, and I really appreciate now we can borrow many Japanese manga translated in English from the city's public library. I think it is a recent trend, say, maybe past four or five years or so. So we can observe how manga's popularity is growing so rapidly in Canada. That's so amazing. I did not realize it was such a large industry. I guess I I could have. I know I work with a lot of young people who have interest in manga and anime. They read it, they watch it, and it's this new phenomenon that wasn't, when I was younger, wasn't nearly as popular. And so for people like me that were not or are not familiar with manga, it's divided into different genres by gender and age. And this division of genres is important, I believe, in understanding the context in which self-injury is portrayed in manga. Can you break down for us the different genres and how different characters might be depicted based on genre, regardless of self-injury depictions? Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to talk about Japanese manga market only. It does not apply to North American market or European market, just so you know. 
Okay. So one notable characteristic of Japanese manga is its division of genres by gender and age. Most manga first appear as a series in comic magazines, which are grouped by their gender-based readership, namely magazines for men and for women. Then each category is further divided into age-based subgenres, including shonen manga, which is boys' comic, targeting readers 18 year and younger, seinen manga, which is comics for young male age 18 to 30, and then seijin manga, comics for grown-ups. This same thing applies for female readers. There are shoujo manga, which is comics for girls 18 and younger. Josei manga, comic targeting young female adults aged 18 to 30. Then lady comics for adult women. There are also boys love genre featuring homoerotic love romance written for young female audience. So like boys and girls manga targeting young readers generally refrain from explicit nudity, violence, and sex while manga for adult audiences may carry R18 content. Compared to motion pictures like anime and film, manga creators in Japan have relative freedom of expression. So manga creators and editors tend to push the envelope when portraying controversial issues like self-injury. Although Japanese consumers increasingly engage in cross-age, cross-gender readership, usually manga for girls are written by girls or young female for girls about girls, while manga for boys written by boys for boys about boys. So I would say many manga still reproduce traditional gender norms, and this might be very important when it comes to understanding a depiction of self-injury in manga. Can young people get a hold of manga that's written for adults? Is it easy to access or is it really more difficult for young people to access that? You can actually buy anything, even in a convenience store. So R18 content, yes, there is some way to, you know, there's a different like section or corner in a bookstore, say R18, but nobody stops you just going there and take it. So yeah, in terms of availability, it is more for marketing strategies, not for the sanction of the content. So do some boys read some of the manga that's written for girls and girls read that which is written for boys and adults as well? Yeah, it's getting more and more popular. Like adults read boys manga and also boys read like young men's manga, stuff like that. You and Dr. Kikuchi just published a study analyzing self-injury depicted in manga between the years 2000 and 2017. First, what did we know about self-injury in manga prior to the year 2000? Yeah, prior to our study, we found only one brief report written in Japanese that examines self-cutting portrayed in shoujo manga, girls manga, published between 1973 to 2005, along with folklore and popular songs. So looking at the shoujo manga featuring wrist cutting, the author suggested that the meaning ascribed to self-injury has been changing over time from attempted suicide to a coping strategy. In this paper, we wanted to expand our scope from shoujo manga, girls manga to other genres and covered manga published between 2000 and after. We also wanted to use a systematic search and content analysis method to ensure robust analysis. So there's so much manga out there. Can you walk us through your method of how you chose which to analyze and of those that you analyzed, how many featured characters who engage in self-injury? Sure. 
well, of course, it's easier to read the paper, but I'm just going to summarize a little bit. So first of all, there is no comprehensive database for Japanese manga. And the topic of self-injury is, as you can imagine, usually not included as an index label. So you cannot just type in like self-injury and find it. So we first searched three digital databases for manga, namely the Japan National Diet Library, Japanese Agency for Cultural Affairs Media Arts Digital Archive, and Kyoto International Manga Museum's Manga Repository. Just so you know, Japan National Diet Library is equivalent to the U.S. Library of Congress, so they have a huge archive. We then contacted six Japanese libraries with extensive manga collections for reference. So we emailed to the librarians and asked if you know anything related to self-entry, and finally, we conducted Google search, visited online communities featuring self-injury, such as selfinjury.net, and circulated inquiries among professional and personal networks. In terms of inclusion criteria, our focus was on the slice-of-life genre that features realistic depictions of everyday life. We are most interested in how self-injury is portrayed in everyday life contexts which means we have to exclude sci-fi, science fiction, fantasy, or other genres that take place in imaginary worlds. We also excluded manga featuring overt suicide attempts or culturally sanctioned forms such as tattooing and piercing. And we ended up including 15 manga titles featuring 18 characters who self-injure in the narratives. Eight girls, five young men, one female, sorry, one, one woman and one boy's love. We didn't have any boys or shonen manga. I think I should mention that why there was no shonen or boys manga. Maybe there are two potential explanations that may account for the absence of shonen manga. First, in shonen manga, the slice of life genre is popular, but not as dominant as in other genres, like in shoujo manga. If you know about Dragon Ball Z or One Piece, these fall into the shonen manga genre. Self-injury depicted as happening in imaginary world did not meet in this study's inclusion criteria. Interestingly, we talk a lot about the manga anime series called Attack on Titans, and I'm pretty sure some of your some of the, of the audience know about that. It's a great example because in the story, characters bite or hurt themselves in order to transform into titans. Through the act is deliberate, and depiction is very clearly self-harming. This did not meet our criteria. Second, when shonen manga portrays self-injurious behaviors, the act tend to take a form of physical aggression against objects rather than aggression against oneself. During the peer review process, one anonymous reviewer commented that the absence of shonen manga in our sample may also suggest a gendered understanding of self-injury penetrating Japanese popular culture. We found this to be very valid comment given the historically gendered manga market. So are you saying then, culturally speaking, boys are typically not assumed to engage in self-injury in Japanese culture? I would say they would. They are assumed to engage in aggression toward like object or others. So when they hit the wall or like break the grass, as a consequence, they hurt themselves. It does not count as self-injury. Does it make sense? Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Some people will actually hurt themselves intentionally. They might punch a wall or something in order to hurt themselves. And we do consider that non-suicidal self-injury if that's the intent. But in these cases, they're just acting aggressively. And then unintended consequence is harm to the individual. But in these manga, you're not including that as a non-suicidal self-injurious episode. No. This is definitely for the future research, right? It's very interesting because that's so nuanced. We had to read through the narrative 
And we have to make a judgment that this is not for the non-sensitive injury because the negative consequences does not portray as such. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Great question. We can't necessarily infer the intent of the behavior just by witnessing it necessarily, I, I suppose, even in manga. What did you find in terms of how self-injury is portrayed in manga regarding help-seeking, stigmatization, how individuals seek support from others? Yeah, in terms of perceived functions of self-injury, we use Dr. David Kronsky's seven-function model as a guiding framework. 55% of self-injury were depicted as a strategy to regulate negative emotion. In most scenes we analyze, self-injury was depicted as independent from suicidal thoughts, like the way of enduring the pain of living. And in other scenes, the practice is portrayed as interpersonal manipulation or a blood oath of friendship. With respect to support, 10 out of 18 characters receive informal support from partners and friends. But parents and siblings seldom served as a source of support. Rather, in some manga, Parents are portrayed as a direct trigger of self-injury. And in many stories, characters who engage in self-injury ended up stopping the practice, mostly with help from partners and close friends. That's interesting. So the characters portrayed, there are 18 characters in the manga that you had found that had engaged in self-injury, and the majority sought support in peers and not parents. Not parents. This is interesting. I I know you had also observed a couple of contrasting perspectives toward young girls who self-injure. I believe the terms were the shoujo and seinen manga. Yep. And you suggest there could be a potential new trend that's emerging. Can you talk a little bit about this and the difference between the shoujo and seinen? Yeah, in shoujo manga, the girl who engaged in self-injury is often portrayed from the first-person perspective. So you can put yourself into the shoes of the person who self-injured and go through why she decided to do so and how she overcome and stuff like that. On the other hand, seinen manga is for young male readers 18 to 30 years old, in that the protagonist is usually men who fell in love with the girl who self-injured. So like in the case that the narrative is that more about the girls are so basically portrayed as very cute and vulnerable and somehow sexualized. So these are like two different contrasting perspectives we identified. Can you tell us a little bit about Minhera and how that might play a role in the scene in manga? Yeah. Menhela is a cultural slang abbreviating mental health sar with suffix er, meaning people with mental ill health. In manga, we examine the self-injury signals, mental morbidity of Menhela girls who are fetishized through the heterosexual male gaze. Yeah, I can talk more about it, but you know, it's just... Yeah, it's very interesting. So there's this fetishizing of a young girl in distress. I think you use the term damsel in distress, where in this case, there's the self-injury, the marks on the body that might be fetishized by the male readers from age 18 to 30 that are reading the seinen manga and find that they are also enjoying like reading or fetishizing. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about this because, in fact, Dr. Kikuchi and I just submitted a paper, new paper about Menhera girls in Japanese popular culture beyond the manga and animation. Studies indicate that self-injuring characters in popular media are predominantly younger girls who self-cut. This portrayal reflects and reproduces the medical discourse that has historically associated self-injury with young women and act of cutting. Seems to me the sexual objectification of self-injured female bodies and the fear nobody would find me attractive 
at the flip sides of the same coin. Both perspectives reflect the culturally constructed sexual desire, male desire, toward women. It's a non-reciprocal staring gaze that tells women that their external appearance matters, perhaps more than anything else, right? The male gaze is clearly internalized as a form of self-objectification. It's fundamentally sexist and naivist. So it's interesting that self-inflicted injury inscribed on male body may be led differently. Think about blues, burns, cuts, stitches on male, particularly athletic bodies. Football player, for example, it could be led as a badge of honor. This would be led very differently on female bodies, right? So I feel like that body positive movement might be one way to promote self-love and emancipation from this ableist pathological reading of scars, wounds, caused by self-injury, but any other means. And one interesting phenomenon I just wrote about in the paper is Menghela fashion that features sick motif embedded within girly cute aesthetics. So there is a juxtaposition between eye patches, syringe, and knives with strawberry unicorns and rainbow motif. It comes together. One salient example is a wrist-cutting bracelet that emulates gaping wounds caused by self-cutting. The product was sold out so quickly, but the resale announcement caused a storm of criticism, which led to discontinuation of this project. So it's, it's interesting, although there was understandable concern, right, that this type of fashion would trivialize self-injury and other serious issues behind that. But there is interesting thing about the blessed was designed by a person who has long-term history of self-injury and was sold out so quickly that indicate there is something attractive about the idea of removable scars, wearable and removable scars, especially for those who have history of self-injury. I don't know much about it. Like this is not nothing to do with this paper. But in the end, I think we need to be mindful that youth counterculture, like anime, manga, or male fashion, tends to destabilize what the society takes for granted. For example, what attractive body is and why they have to appear themselves as appealing to the others before loving themselves. Wow, those are some interesting points. And you said there is a product that is worn as a bracelet that looks like wounds, self-inflicted, self-injurious scars and wounds that was discontinued? Yeah, it was discontinued in 2015. How long was it out on the market? Eight months. Uh, they sold and they sold out. The first, uh, first wave was sold out. Then they tried to resell. They, basically, they tried to reproduce and resell and post on their ad on Twitter. They got a huge storm of criticism, and the designer decided not to sell anymore. Wow. I'm just wondering what made someone decide to create a product like that, and what need was met in the market? Yeah. Well, in the paper we just submitted, we didn't touch upon that deep, because it may be very interesting to think about how the scars can be read differently through the different lens, such as fashion or counterculture. Yeah, so this was specifically in Japan, or was this other countries throughout the world? Specifically in Japan, but the, the Mankela culture itself is so popular on Tumblr. Mm. And that was uh, translated into English by fans. Well, this leads right into my next question, talking about manga having the power to shape public understanding of mental health issues, almost as serving as like textbooks for living, and even potentially being used in treating individuals who self-injure. First... 
Do you think self-injury in manga may lead or trigger vulnerable readers or viewers to self-injure, whether to re-engage in the behavior or to self-injure for the first time? This is a million-dollar question, <laughs> right, Dr. Masters? In Japan, potential psychological and behavioral impacts of manga and anime on readers, especially youth, have long been the topic of contested debate. Violent and sexually explicit expressions in manga for young readership repeatedly came under criticism by parent associations, school authorities, and policymakers who insisted manga has harmful impact on children. That being said, we should recall the golden rule of social science research. Correlation is not causation. We no longer believe the classic hypodemic needle model of communication that considers the mass media injects its message straight into the passive audience. I hope, I really hope clinicians, practitioners, educators, and parents do not believe this simplistic model that media consumption, consumption alone would cause self-injury. And also as a communication scholar, I think it is a bit too naive to believe that people may engage in self-injury for the first time after reading manga or anime. The information about self-injury and the perceived effect such as emotional regulation surround us. The term such as wrist cutting has long been part of Japanese everyday lexicon, so there's self-harm and self-injury. If a person already knows about self-injury and what it may do to them, I do not think the chance is huge that people learn about self-injury from manga or anime for the first time. And related to the, your question about re-engagement, re-engagement, I think it depends on how and why a person has stopped self-injury. If that person has engaged in self-injury for a certain period and stopped, they know what it, what it is like. It's not easy to forget. Then it seems to me a little bit simplistic to consider reading manga alone, again, alone, remind them of the act and cause a relapse. Honestly, there is not so much research on this area, so I cannot speak of what is actual effect on that de-engagement of the person who had already self-injured and stopped, if that's fair. What about those that actively engage in self-injury who might see or read manga where self-injury is depicted? Again, it depends on the narratives, right? Storylines. And if the characters stop their behavior at the end of the narrative storyline, Maybe the impression of the message is quite different than the person who self injury is portrayed as so-called stigmatizing label, like self-harmer. It's a quite different depiction. Yeah, which leads me to the next part of this question was about how you see manga being able to help or treat self-injury. So it sounds like reading manga and seeing the character get or seek support and overcome or stop self-injuring might be one way? Perhaps. I think the growing field of graphic medicine may indicate the potential of manga for patient care and education, but also medical education and the social critique of medical profession. We have already seen an effort in other areas of mental health, such as depression or schizophrenia, in which creators with first-hand experience of these mental ill health conditions wrote manga to tell their stories, right? It would be extremely interesting if people with history of self-injury will collaborate with manga creators to write an authentic first-person narrative in comic format. So if we're going to talk about the impact of manga and anime, we should talk about impact to who, right? Not only the person who have history of self-injury, but also their families, but also medical educators, 
clinicians, practitioners, educators in general, how they understand this imaginary world and can they share the same discourse so that you can understand better about the person who's self-injured. Yeah, and the concept of graphic medicine is relatively new. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about graphic medicine and what we mean by that? Graphic medicines, I think that I have to actually check that when, which year was, maybe 10 years ago? Yeah, 2011, 2012. Mainly, it was the idea of using graphic novels and comics for uh, medical education and education in the med school students, but also the practitioners in the field to better understand what patients go through so that they can have more empathy in their client-centered care and communication. In Japan, graphic medicine, Japanese branch was opened again around 2015, I guess. They are now growing huge. They are translating some of the medical manga into Japanese. And yeah, they're pretty active. And what a neat idea to have individuals with lived experience contribute to the development of narratives within manga to educate and develop that empathy and compassion, like you're mentioning, offer support and education to the general public and destigmatize, like you're mentioning, destigmatizing the behavior. Yeah. Have you seen any representations of self-injury in anime, so the television or movies depicting characters who self-injure? Not so much. When the manga transforms into anime, the level of expression of freedom goes down a little bit because it's motion pictures and it has sound and a more triggering aspect. So usually producers cut off some of the scenes. So I don't really see the animation. However, as I say, Attack on Titan, that's a fantasy, but there is explicit self-biting scene by protagonists in order to transform into titans. Does it count? For our research, no. But this tells you something about the connection between, you know, it's implicit, it's explicit, the implicit cultural connotation. Harming yourself can be reasonable choice if you have bigger purpose to fight with evil or something, right? So yeah, to your to answer your questions, you see less explicit depiction of self-injury in anime or motion pictures than in manga. And you think that's because of the level of censoring that motion pictures have with the different ratings as opposed to a picture in an, a graphic novel? Exactly. And this is exactly why anime market is bigger. It's safer to export this content overseas, right? Very interesting. I did not consider that. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think would be important for us to talk about in relationship to self-injury as depicted in manga? I think it's important to think about, as I said, I'm a big believer of narratives, and I think narratives can enforce, but also open up alternative pathways to reclaim the people's life. Self-injury in the way, in the end of the way, Maybe it's a way of communicating with yourself and others, right? So expose oneself to diverse narratives because narratives are rich depository of human wisdom that helps you understand how to think of this enigmatic behavior. In our paper, we just indicated there are many different ways self-injury can be depicted in manga. And there is not, not only one way to make sense of this practice. So I feel like enriching your vocabulary and tell your own story what self-injury means to you and your significant significant others help the person who self-injured to own the practice beyond the stigmatization and beyond the medicalization. Thinking about our stories of our narratives of lived experience that we've shared on this podcast and that we'll continue to have as I interview more individuals with lived experience. And I think about how we are changed by stories in the narratives, and we also can contribute to those stories 
going back to the comment about vulnerable individuals, when I think about vulnerable individuals, it's those who may identify with certain characters. And when we have stories of hope and recovery, and people can identify with those very individuals, those very characters, whether in manga or film, television, or real life stories, then I, I think there's that from social psychology, that social proof that we look to similar others for proper ways to behave. And if we see mm-hmm. stories of hope and people seeking support and this destigmatization of the behavior in individuals just in general with mental health difficulties, I think there's a yeah, there's a lot of hope there. There's a lot of positive mm-hmm. things that can come from it. Yeah, I agree. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents, let's say parents of children who have self-injured or who are consumers of manga? Mm, I think it is important to consistently show you are there to support the child. But if you wanted to show the support, I think you can do some some way that is informed more for the social uh, solution-focused communication that I have been researching past five years. One easy exercise you can implement in everyday life could be stop asking why. So why are you reading this? No, not that. Even if you have a good intention, asking why may sound accusatory. But instead of asking why you are reading this or why you're doing this, you may ask what does it feel like or what difference does it make or what important for you to read this and listen to them without the judgment. So just to change the word from why to what difference or what does it feel like makes a huge difference in the end. In response to that, I think about parents who may have concern about their child playing video games or they're violent or watching certain things on TV. And I encourage parents to join them, get in their world. Yeah. And so thinking with manga, not only, yeah, what is it that you're you're reading or learning? Let me know. Let me see and talk about this, be able to see what this is about. Yep. And maybe you can make a connection, right? Like maybe you don't have to get into manga, but if they are reading some genre, maybe you can have some connection with that genre. I don't know, like about the hero movies, like maybe you know, you know what you liked before. And you can talk about, you can ask them instead of tell them why it's so, why question? (laughs) (laughs) Like, what makes them so excited about? Great question. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether clinicians or other researchers? I strongly believe clinical practices do not exist in a culture vacuum. So developing an intersectional, cross-disciplinary understanding of cultural context of self-injury has implications for clinical practice and research. Being attentive to cultural discourses based on which people explain, perform, and maybe make sense of their own or other people's self-injury can illuminate important conversations occurring outside of the clinical and academic circles. So I think I would love the clinicians and researchers to be vulnerable, <laughs> be vulnerable of different types of thought. And I think one thing I'd like Dr. Westers to extend this podcast is to invite people who do not identify with typical self-injury, uh, typical so-called self-harmers, right? Race is huge. Social class so ignored. Can we talk more about that? Professionals, can you look into the people, so-called atypical self-injures, people with disability who self-injure? So I, I would love the clinicians to extend their imagination by knowing cultural discourses and merge this with your clinical expertise. 
yeah, anyone listening that fits those criteria, <laughs> feel free to reach out to me. Would love to interview you. I know we had done just recently an episode with Dr. Lindsay Taliaferro on self-injury among LGBTQ individuals and talking about race within LGBTQ individuals who self-injure and are marginalized in many ways. And so I, yeah, if atypical severe self-injury, differences in ability, disability, yeah, those are great topics. And finally, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? As I said earlier, I think it's very important to own your act. It's your body, it's your practice. And medicalization makes you some idea of why this is happening. But it doesn't have to be your only one reason or like only one way to make sense of why you're doing that. So injury, again, I think it's a one way to communicate yourself to yourself and to others. Then what does it mean to you? So this is why going back to the recommendation to clinicians, understanding that your behavior does not happen in a cultural vacuum. And knowing that the cultural discourses and the medical discourses that gives you some explanations is so important because you can choose how to narrate your life. So own it. <laughs> Wonderful. These are great recommendations. Thank you so much, Dr. Seko, for joining us, for sharing your insights based on your research and just knowledge about culture that a lot of listeners probably are unaware of and how that influences self-injurious behaviors like you had mentioned. It doesn't happen in a vacuum, in a cultural vacuum. So thank you for taking your time out to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.